for listening to our podcast, recorded live at Gateway Church Ashford. You can find out more about us on our website, gatewaychurchashford.co.uk. Well, what a lovely time of, of worship there. And uh, it just ties in so much with uh, what I want to be sharing uh, this morning. And really believe that out of it all, God wants to, you know, light a fire afresh in some people's hearts and lives. Um, and you'll see why in just a moment. Uh, so this morning we're looking, continue our series in Ezra and Nehemiah. And you may have already guessed that it ties in with other books as well, like Haggai and uh, Malachi, and so if you read around all of that, you get something of the, the story of, of the people of God on their journey. And so this morning, we're looking at uh, three big hindrances to the worshipping community and to the life of faith. Three big hindrances to the worshipping community and the life of faith. So let's just recap. It's always good to remind ourselves very briefly of the story, and I always think it's good if you can if you like, develop these pegs in your mind to help you hang the, the Bible story on as you go through. Because as one of the things we were sharing during the week, uh, sometimes the Bible can be a f- confusing book because it's not arranged in chronological order. So it's good to develop an idea of this big story that takes place in this book. And so we, we think of the God creating Adam and Eve. We think of the fall. We think of God's promise to save and to reconcile humanity to himself. We Think of him raising up a man called Abraham, and out of Abraham a family and tribes and a nation. We think of their rebellion, uh, and then going into judgment and exile, and then the promise uh, of return and uh, of rebuilding, and that's kind of where we are in the story. So it's, looking at that again, Adam, fall, promise, Abraham, family, nation, rebellion, exile, promise, return, rebuilding. So we're in the story where they have gone back home. They've gone back to Jerusalem to rebuild. And we've seen something of the challenges that they face. There's an ebb and a a flow to the story, a hotness and a a coldness to it. One minute they're all in and and there's time of great commitment and celebration. You look at Ezra chapter 3 and verse 10 where it says, when the builders completed the foundation of the Lord's temple, they celebrated, they rejoiced, they praised, they wept. They had joy in the Lord. The next we know is that they've retreated uh, to the comfort of their homes. And, and in many ways, we see in the Bible stories much like ours, the ebb and flow of life, the challenges of walking with God, what it means to be men and women of faith, what it means to come up against the enemy, what it means to, to find hardship, what it means to have difficult times in our experiences as God's people. The fact that we don't come to know Jesus doesn't make all things pretty, but we do know that he makes all things beautiful in his time. And that's one of the things we have to understand about God's purpose, the, the process of life. And in, in the part of the story that we are looking at, we, we see it. It wasn't straightforward. Things weren't going right. It wasn't turning out as they expected. There, there weren't that many of them compared to the number that were taken into exile. They were surrounded by their enemies. There was, there was drought. There was poverty. And the land that they occupied was, was much smaller than what it had originally been. And it kind of begged the question, what was God doing? And I don't know. Maybe you've been there. Maybe you are there at this moment in time. 
You've known something of God's ways in your life. You've known something of, uh, of God's promises. You've known something of His prophetic word. You've walked with Him. You've, you've seen things happen. You've seen things fulfilled. And you've enjoyed the journey. But suddenly there's, there's come a difficult time. And it, and it seems as if God is difficult to find. You're not sure where He is. Though He is Emmanuel, God with us, He never leaves us. But where is He in the circumstances of my life at this moment in time? I can't, I can't see Him. I can't feel Him. I've got His Word. And I, I, I'm not sure about that anymore either. That's where they were. Maybe you are there at this moment in time. And this morning we, you were going to look at three big hindrances to the worshipping community and the life of faith. And we must always remember that they are tied together. There's no such thing as a solitary Christian. God puts us in families called church. He joins us together with others because we can't do life on our own and we were never designed to do life on our own. If the enemy can isolate us, he can conquer us. He can hold us in defeat. He can prevent us from entering into the greater purposes of God. He can, he can, he can put a wet blanket on our fire. He can lead us off track and all sorts of things. Brothers and sisters, we need one another. Yeah. I need you. You need one another. We need one another. Turn to the person next to you and say to them, I need you. <laughs> yeah, whether you like it or not, we need one another. <laughs> and it begins, first of all, with acknowledging my own need, your own need, that I have needs within me that I cannot possibly fulfill on my own. I can't come to maturity on my own, neither can you. And uh, I, I've been doing quite a lot of just overviewing some of this recently. And, you know, we can only grow up as we are in community. Yeah. We can only mature as we're in community, in gathering like this and in also gathering in our community groups. That's why they're so important. We learn to relate together. We learn to share together. We learn to love one another. We learn to forgive. We learn to pray. We learn to meet needs and so on. The world is bigger than me. It's about us as a people. So we've got these three big hindrances to the, the life of faith and the worshipping community. And remember, they were called to be a worshipping community. They were called to be a light to the nations. They were going to be God's witness in the world. And they don't do that on their own. They do that together. And so that's important. So number one, the first hindrance to the life of faith and the worshipping community is complacency. Yeah. Hope that image stays in your mind as you think about this, because that kind of sums up complacency, burying your head in the sand. In many ways, it's a, a kind of comfort, if you like, a strange kind of comfort. It's indifference. It's being casual. It's having that take-it-or-leave-it kind of attitude. I, I don't care, you know. Burying your head in the sand, you're, 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 you're just centered in yourself, in your own little world, being satisfied with, with things as they are. Rejection of things that, that, that might be. It's, a, it's okay. It's, it's kind of good enough. I'm getting by. What else do I need? In many ways, it's a kind of signing off on life. A surrendering to the, the case, sirrah, sirrah. Whatever will be, will be. And that's not what God intended. 
God intends us to surrender to Him that we might engage with life, that we might become better people, better husbands, better wives, better parents, that we might do family well, that we might do church well, that we might do our work well, that we might know how to engage, engage with those challenging employers and fellow colleagues, etc., etc. The dictionary definition is this. It's a feeling of quiet pleasure or security, often while unaware of some potential danger, a defect or, or the like, self-satisfaction or smug satisfaction with an existing situation and condition. I've been there. I'll put my hand up. And I bet many of you have been there as well. Some of you might be there this morning. Just complacent. Complacent about your marriage. Complacent about your family. Complacent in the place of work. Listen to this. Someone said complacency, complacent satisfaction is the killer of dreams. Complacent satisfaction is the killer of dreams. God might have given you a dream at one time, but you've become complacent. You've become complacent. It's not that God's taken away the dream, it's that you've become complacent. You've not realized your place in seeing that dream fulfilled. Let me say this right up front. We get muddled up at times about what God does and what we do in our lives. But you know, we are responsible for our maturity. God isn't. God wants to grow his children, but we are responsible for maturity, to respond to him, to listen to him, to grow in faith, to change things, etc. So, you may have had a dream, a very real dream, but you've lost it because of complacency. I want to say this morning, God wants to give it back to you. Amen? If you're in that position, God is a loving God and a gracious God and a merciful God. And he doesn't turn around to his kids and say, Ah, oh, if you really want to be like that, sorry, that's the end of it. I'm wringing my hands of you. You just make out of life what you can. God is a restorer. Hallelujah. He's the restorer of our souls. He is the restorer of dreams and visions. I've known what it is to have vision to have dreams and to lose them and then to recover them again. God is a God of dreams. He gives us visions, but complacency can cause us to lose sight. You know, complacency just wraps us up in our own little world. It causes us to, to lose sight of the big picture and we end up living small, cramped, tiny lives. Let me tell you this, God wants us all to live big lives, expansive lives, growing lives, lives that are, are, are not just about us, but how we engage with others, how we bring something of God's heart into other people's lives. It may be that you only meet them for a fleeting moment. It may be a relationship that lasts a long time. Complacency saps our energy, it dulls attitudes, it drains the brain, it produces fear of the unknown, mistrust of the untried, and it causes us to abhor anything new. I won't ask you to raise your hand, but acknowledge it in your heart. Are you one of those people who just doesn't like anything new? Because God has a way of doing new things. Doesn't he? Amen? 
Come on, more excited than that. God has a way of doing new things. Amen. Amen. Yeah. And that means we have to step outside of those circles that we draw around ourselves and say, this is me. This is me. Don't expect me to change. Well, God does. And he has a way of wanting to break through in our lives. And, and so it, it may be that the reason you are lacking in energy and enthusiasm at this moment is that you've given in to complacency. You've become indifferent. You've adopted the Sarah Sarah approach to life. And the seeds of all of this actually are here in our Bible and, and there in the books of Ezra, Nehemiah, and Haggai. And when you get to Malachi, well, it's full-blown. It's all over the book. So Haggai 1 verse 2, the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Oh, they had been, they'd gone back because of the promise. And they had started by building an altar and then begun to rebuild the house of the Lord. And they were laying the foundations and the enemy kept coming at them, coming at them, coming at them. And in the end, they were forced to, forced to stop. And for years, they just kept saying, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time, it's not time. And all the while it wasn't time, they were looking after their cozy little selves. They were making life good for them in their own isolated little worlds. They had lost sight of God's big picture. The enemy got the better of the situation and forced the Jews to stop building. They resigned. They settled, and they settled, and they settled. In Ezra 7, verse 13, and, and also you can read in 8, 15 as well, the Levites, those who were there to serve in the temple, it's like, the writer says, where are they? Where are they? They're not where they should be. They're not in the temple. They were back home as well. They kind of resigned on God not willing to to live into or indifferent to who God had called them to be. Perhaps that's you this morning. You've kind of resigned. You've become complacent and you've resigned. You've pulled back. You're no longer as committed as you were. The fire is no longer burning as it used to be. And then in Nehemiah verse 13, verse 11... The writer says there, why is the house of God forsaken? This is the place of the worshipping community, and yet it is forsaken. The priests have gone home. What priority do we give to that corporate worship of God and prayer? Why is it forsaken? This is the time to encounter God. When we come together on a Sunday morning, when we meet together in community groups, when we meet together for prayer meetings, they're times, they're important community times. They had retreated. In the face of the difficulty of life, they had retreated to their homes. And they were just content. Whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours to see. They were just living in the moment. And you notice when you read through those books that the fear and reverence for God are gone that familiarity was kind of breeding contempt. They were settling for second best. You know, complacency costs, and it can cost big time. I guess most of us are aware of the story of the capsizing of that, that ferry, that, that liner. I'm thinking of 
not, not the Zeebrugge one, but a more recent one, uh, the Costa Concordia. And the captain, the master of the ship, said this, I was navigating by sight because I knew the depths well, and I'd done this maneuver three or four times. Complacency calls the loss of a whole number of lives. His complacency. I've done this before. I know how to do it. I don't have to pay the same kind of attention. And the fact that he didn't pay the same kind of attention meant the loss of life. Complacency. And then we come to compromise. Compromise. The shaking of hands on something. It's dealing in in two halves. It's to have a foot in both camps. It's to want the best of both worlds or anything for a quiet life. So it's negotiating to the lowest common denominator. When you read the Bible, you discover it's Israel's history. They compromised. They compromised on what they were meant to do when they went into the land years before. And you find that they compromise again. The temptation to to compromise came under the guise of cooperation. The enemy is sneaky. We need to know that. The enemy is sneaky. And he came up to them, and you'll see there in Ezra chapter 4, verse 2, the enemies of Judah, verse 1, and Benjamin heard that the exiles were re- to the Lord, the God of Israel. And so they approached Zerubbabel and the other leaders, and they said, let us build with you, for we worship your God just as you do. And we've sacrificed him ever since King Esaradan of Assyria brought us here. Oh, this looks good, doesn't it? Looks good. These people who have been so much trouble to them suddenly saying, look, actually, we, we'll come and we, we'll worship with you. Let us, let us help you. Let us build with you. We worship the same God, just as you do. We've sacrificed to him. All sounds good on the surface, but actually... They were not only worshipping the God of Israel, they were worshipping other gods as well. They would be bringing other things into the mix. It was a dangerous thing, and they recognised it. The enemy doesn't like, to, like us to advance. He tempts us to compromise. These people had put, been put there by Israel's conquerors many years before, and that's what we need to understand. It looked good on the surface, but actually they'd been put there by Israel's conquerors. When they took Israel away, they they filled the land in many ways back up with other people who who were the forefathers of the Samaritans. There was a blending of worship. It was blended worship, a melding of the worship of the one true God with allegiance to others at the same time. Yes, there was some truth in what they were saying. They they worshipped God as they did, but they worshipped many others as well. If the enemy can't win one way, he will try another. In Ezra chapter 9, we find them marrying those in the land with something which they shouldn't have done. Mixed marriages that brought in the abominations of other nations and their gods. We find that they weren't taking God seriously. So it says there, then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel, Ezra 9 verse 4, then all that means that there were some who didn't. They were no longer trembling at the word of God. They were no longer taking the word of God seriously. And we we can get like that. We can, you know, we can have several Bibles on our bookshelves. We can have them on our phones. We 
we, we, can, we can have access to, to Scripture in so many ways, but in many ways that can mean that we end up not taking it seriously. When people didn't have Bibles, they, they hungered for the Word. They longed for it. I think of the little Welsh girl who saved up her money and walked many, many miles to get her first Bible. I wonder how many people would do that today. Suddenly this word was commonplace to them, and they weren't taking the word of God seriously. Ezra's prayer is, we've done it again. We've done it again. We've failed you. They compromise God's word. In Nehemiah chapter 5, you find them living by the world's standards. And suddenly now they're, they're charging interest of their very own people. And he says, what? What, what on earth are you doing? This is, this is worldly standards. You shouldn't be living as God's community, the worshipping community, the people of faith in this way. They were charging interest. And again, a lack of the fear of God led to compromise. I think one of the most shocking ones, if you, you want to go to it, is Nehemiah chapter 13. Nehemiah chapter 13. And we read these words on that same day as the book of Moses was being read to the people, the passage was found that said, no Ammonite or Moabite should ever be permitted to enter the assembly of God, for they had not provided the Israelites with food and water in the wilderness, and instead they hired Balaam to curse them, and though our God turned the curse into a blessing. And when this passage of the law was read, all those of foreign descent were immediately excluded from the assembly. But for this happened, Eliashib the priest, who had been appointed as the supervisor of the storerooms of the temple of our God, and who was also a relative of Tobiah, had converted a large storage room and placed it at Tobiah's disposal. And the room had previously been used for storing the grain offerings, the frankincense, and various articles for the temple, the tithes of grain, new wine, olive oil, which were prescribed for the Levites, the singers, and the gatekeepers, as well as the offerings for the priests. Who was Tobiah? <laughs> eh? can easily pass over this verse, but who was Tobiah? He was one of the, the terrible three, wasn't he? He was one who was trying to hinder the purposes of God in every way. And, and, and Nehemiah is shocked. He says, what? You've given a room in the very temple to, to Tobiah? What on earth do you, are you thinking of? You see, it was compromise. It was compromise. And if you read elsewhere in, in, in Nehemiah, you find it's compromised because of relationship, and it's hinted at there. There is a, a relationship. He has a relationship. He's connected. There are family ties to him. And so he's kind of giving space, as it were. He's overlooking things, and he's giving space to Tobiah. And, uh, of course, if you read on there, uh, Nehemiah will have none of it. I wasn't in Jerusalem at that time, for I had returned to King Artaxerxes of Babylon in the 32nd year of his reign. 
And though I later asked permission to return, and when I arrived back in Jerusalem, I learned from Eliashib's evil about Eliashib's evil deed in providing Tobiah with a room in the courtyards of the temple of God. And I became very upset and threw all of Tobiah's belongings out of the room, and then I demanded that the rooms be purified, and I brought back the articles for God's temple, the grain offerings, and the frankincense. Nehemiah was ruthless, wasn't he? Yeah. But you've got to be ruthless in the face of compromise. You can't come along and sort of be all nicey-nicey and, oh, let's negotiate our way out of this. You just end up compromising even more. There is a ruthlessness. You have to say, no, enough is enough. We cannot do this. Compromise means that you, are, you, not, you end up neither one thing nor the other. We can compromise ourselves in so many ways. One of the things that that God put on my heart as I've been thinking about this morning is the issue of our, our relationships, our marriages, and for us men, how we can compromise our, our marriages by giving ourselves to pornography, to things outside of marriage. It's a big issue. You compromise your relationship. And that means you compromise your relationship with God. It's a big issue. Not only in the world at large, but it's a big issue in the church. It takes people out of ministry. It wrecks marriages. It wrecks lives big time. And like they could kind of justify it, we can end up justifying ourselves finding all sorts of reasons to go to that computer, to look on our phone, and somehow indulge our desires. You can't negotiate your way out of that because you'll just end up compromising all the way. You have to say, no, this is not on. It's compromising my, myself, it's compromising my marriage, If you've got a family, it's compromising your family. Compromising those who know you. It's one of those things that eat into our lives. Eat into the very heart of who we are. Chews us up and screws us up. And then spits us out. Compromise. Church, both in the New Te- Old Testament and the New Testament, we see times of compromise where for various reasons they, they compromised with the world that they lived in. You go to the book of James. James is all about that. It's compromising because we, it's a challenging world out there. There's suffering, there's persecution, etc., And so that chapter that we get all confused about, about works and faith and faith and works, and which is it, is all about the fact that they have faith, but they're keeping their light under a bushel. They're living compromised with the world. And and so James writes to them and says, come on, this is not the way to live. Add fuel to your faith by doing something, by getting back into action, getting back on the pitch, 
The church in Laodicea was neither hot nor cold. We often think they're as cold as being bad, but actually it's not. It's actually it's reference to the fact of cold being vitalizing, refreshing, renewing, energizing, and fire being stimulating and warming and exhilarating in that kind of way. So God is saying, I, I, I would, I'd like you to be either hot or cold. I don't want you in the middle. don't want you there. Ugh. It's insipid. doesn't taste nice. I would that you were either hot or cold. Let me ask you this morning, where are you compromising? Where are you compromising in your life? Where have you done deals with, as Paul calls it, the flesh? You do deals, you... You have an agreement with a part of your nature that wants to live in a worldly way. You've done deals. You've compromised. Maybe others don't even know anything about it. Maybe you look the part here. But what do you look like on Monday morning? when you're there in the office, when you're with the lads out on a job? What does it look like? Do you, do you compromise? Do you try to be one of them because you want to be in with them? You don't want to stand out. There's a measure which we all like to be liked, don't we? We can compromise in, in so many ways. But compromise impacts our ability to grow. It impacts our ability to see the dreams that God wants to give to us and is giving to us. It impacts our ability to see them fulfilled. Where are you compromising? Have you compromised with pornography? Is that where you're getting your sexual delight? Husbands, it should be your wives. It should be your wives. It should be your wives. Let me say this. Life takes work. Marriages take work. Family takes work, doesn't it? But we live in a world that basically says, look, you know, just, just, just be and do and feel as you wish. That's irresponsible. That doesn't raise people of character and quality. And so you, when you look through these, these books here, the issues of complacency and compromise are, are big issues. Who or what are you giving a room to in your heart, in your mind, in your life? that you need to kick out today. I'd be as blunt as that, because that's what Nehemiah was. If you're giving such a room to something in your heart, in your life like that, kick it out today. Get ruthless and kick it out. And then cynicism. So complacency, compromise, cynicism. 
Cynicism is a general distrust of people, leading to, leading to ridicule and scorn, and it manifests in, in its frustration with people and institutions that have hurt us, leaving us feeling cheated, robbed, and lied to. It isolates us and it makes us judgmental and distrustful of the motives of others. And it's a destructive attitude or emotion. The strangest thing of all in preparation for this is I came across the idea that actually in the Western church today, it's considered to be a new form of spirituality, to be cynical. Can you believe it? Can you believe that? I, 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 when I read that, I was shocked. This writer was saying that it's, it's some people actually view being cynical as being spiritual. Let me be right up front and say, God doesn't. God doesn't. God doesn't. As British, those of us who are British, we kind of grow up in that kind of world of cynicism, of scepticism. You know, in many, many ways, I love the Americans because they, yeah, I believe that. Let's go for that. Let's do it. You know? And we British are, oh, well, uh, hang on a minute. Um, ooh, is that really up? Uh, you know? You know what we're like. Cynicism, it, it's, it's awful. It happens when things don't turn out as we thought. We doubt and we become dubious of everything and, and everyone. Maybe we had a word. Maybe it was a prophecy and it's not worked out as we imagined. And it's right here in Israel's story. Right here. The weeping that takes place in Ezra chapter 3 verse 12 is, is a weeping because as they look at this, oh, it's not what they thought it was going to be. This temple is not what they thought it was going to be. And, there were the <laughs> and here they were in this land, but they were surrounded by enemies still. Shouldn't God have got rid of them? And it wasn't a land that was flowing exactly with milk and honey either. Because actually, there were times of drought and suffering as well. And let Listen to this. They had this big promise, didn't they, from God. And they get back to the land, and all they end up with is 20 by 30 miles. That ain't a lot, is it? It's not a lot. Compared to what it used to be. Compared to what it was under David's reign. What was this all about? It hadn't worked out as they had imagined. What, what, what was God doing? We're sure God spoke, and we're sure God wanted us to go back, and, and here we are. We, you know, we've, we've rebuilt uh, uh, the, the, the altar. We, we've, we've, we've done the, the foundations. We've built the, the temple, but my, it's not anything like we'd expected. And we're still living only in 20 to 30 mi by miles, uh, miles of land. What was God doing? Was it, was it real? Was, was this restoration? Was this the restored kingdom of David? You step over into Malachi. 
Step over into Malachi, and Malachi writes about the same time as, as Nehemiah's return to Babylon. And you get into that book, and it, it's a challenging book. And, and the big question, the summary of the book is, what's the point? What's the point? It's not worked out as we had imagined. Malachi 1, verse 13. Oh, they, they're in this position now. Oh, it's, it's too hard to serve the Lord. It's just too hard. 3, verse 14, at the end. Well, what's, the, what's the use of serving God? I wonder if you've ever been there. I wonder if you've ever been there. Tell you what, I have. I've been there. I felt like that. They're turning up their noses at God's commands. They're, they're giving him stolen, defiled, and cheap offerings. Cynicism had crept into the very core of their being. And it was stopping them from being the people God had called them to be. It can eat away at you. It can devour your faith and consume your relationships. A cynical person isn't a very easy person to live with. Because life is always the glass that's half What was it? The glass that's half empty. Question to ask yourself. Turn to the person next to you and say, do you believe in life as a glass half empty? Something like that. (laughs) Or do you believe in life as a glass half full? A typical Britisher, it would be a glass half empty. Wouldn't it? But if we're living in the kingdom, it should be the glass half full, shouldn't it? God's given me a lot, and I'm expecting more. Yeah? Yeah? So if if you've got that attitude in your life this morning, I want to pray in the name of Jesus that it's broken that you stop believing in a glass half empty. doesn't matter which country you come from, what part of the country you come from. Let's stop believing in a glass half empty. Let's believe in a glass that's half full and that God is going to top up. Amen? Amen. Yeah. You know, cynicism can be a safety net in which you find protection. You've been disappointed and maybe even hurt in the past. And the way you protect yourself is by living in a cynical world. But you know what, and I want to drive this home, it will keep you totally checked out as far as God's purposes are concerned today. It will. It will. You'll live safe, you will not live in faith. You'll live in security and you'll not take risks. Here's an interesting fact for you. Research published in the journal uh, Neurology found that people with high levels of cynical distrust were three times more likely to develop dementia than those with low levels of cynicism. There's a good reason not to be cynical. (laughs) Amen? 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 Yeah, that's a good reason not to be cynical. 
Do you know, when we think of complacency, compromise, and cynicism, we don't ever intend to go there. We don't plan on it, do we? Kind of creeps up on us. Develops over time through a series of failed expectations. It leads to apathy and dejection and sense of hopelessness. As I've said, I, I've known times in my life, and, and I've wept, and I, I, God, I don't know what you're doing. I really don't know what you're doing. And I've wanted to check out on life, because it looks a lot better somewhere else. It looks a lot easier. The psalmist felt like that at times. He said, look, he said, all those wicked people, they really get on well. They prosper and so on. Look at me. Look at me. It's hard. It's difficult. There have been words and prophecies I've ha had right from my, my younger days. There have been times when I felt every dream in me was annihilated. Seemingly unanswered prayers. And do you know what? You end up, you end up doubting the word. You end up Doubting the prophetic word. You end up doubting people. You end up being cynical in every way. And you know what? There's stuff on the internet that will feed that big time. Steer clear of it. It's not helpful. Steer clear of it. It's not helpful. Cynicism follows the path of unresolved disappointment. Number one, there's deferred hope. It starts there. Expectations don't materialize. Hope deferred makes the heart sick. You get disappointment, number two. It's expressed in emotion as a result of failed expectations. And then there's despondency, that feeling of being let down, of being defeated. And then number four, there's despair. The surrendering to the idea that it's pointless to continue to believe for anything good. And then number five, disbelief, cynicism, skepticism, where everything becomes about protectionism. That's a road that you and I can't afford to travel on. Whatever our situation at the moment, however dark and however difficult it might be, that's a road we can't afford to travel because you'll find the enemy walking with you down that road. And he'll be the one who whispers in your ear every step of the way, you're right, it's hard. God is not true to his word. He doesn't keep his promises. The dreams you had, they were just simply dreams. They were figments of your imagination. He will feed that big time. Beth Moore says this. She says, cynicism is carnality that thinks it's smart. Yeah, that's good. <laughs> oh. Cynicism is carnality that thinks it's smart, and actually it's not. It's not. It's a killer to the life of faith. We were made for faith. Hebrews chapter 11 is a lovely chapter of the Bible, and I recommend you read all of it. Don't just read the first half. You read all of it. So in the first half, you've got those people who it says, who believe God. They believe God and they, they saw God move. They saw God do things. They saw God act. He fulfilled his promises. But that second half of Hebrews chapter 11 is about people who didn't see what God has said fulfilled. They didn't resign themselves to unbelief and to cynicism though. It says the world was not worthy of them. They may have said, I don't understand it, but they said, I believe God. 
And I believe him with all of my heart, all of my soul, and he has all of my life. I'm going to follow him all the days of my life, even though it means I I might be sworn into, I might experience great hardships. They believed God. Wow. God is calling us to faith. To ever-increasing faith. We don't plan on losing our first love. Let's stand, shall we? Listen, when I read the book of Malachi, they've reached the point where they say, God, you don't love us. You don't love us. And that's where the enemy loves to drive us to, given half the chance. We don't plan for it, but he's sneaky. And complacency and compromise can ultimately lead us to cynicism where we no longer feel that God loves us. That's where they arrived. That's where they arrived. And God reassured them, even though they were that cynical, that I love you. I love you. And if you're in that position this morning, I want you to hear that. If that's where you are this morning, I want you to hear that God loves you. God loves you. Doesn't love you any less than the day you came to know him as your Savior and Lord. He loves you. And I want to assure you this morning that his heart is big for you. He's not sitting there on his throne in heaven saying, well, I'm done with you. He's speaking and calling you up and he's, he's just highlighting these things, those, that complacency. He's highlighting that compromise. He's, he's highlighting that cynicism. And he's saying to you afresh, this is a day to light the fire again. We had that when we were up there in the prayer time before the meeting started picture of candles and, and them being lit again. And I believe God wants to do that this morning in, in lives here that have given in to complacency and compromise and cynicism. It's nothing like those things to kill the fire on the altar of our heart. I'd just like you to open your heart to God in this moment. If that's you in any of those areas, to realize it. Realize it's the enemy who's the killer of dreams, not God. That God loves you, and God is for you. His mercy and his grace is big. He's covered all that failing in Jesus. Covered it all in Jesus. So we look away from it, we look in and we we deal with the realities of what we see in our heart and we look away unto Jesus and we say, he's the author, he's the finisher of our faith. He is the one who has caught me up into God's great purposes. So here I am, Lord. Here I am, Lord, wholly available. 
We say, Father, show us those areas of compromise and complacency and cynicism. Help us to deal with them before you. Light that fire again on our hearts, in our hearts, Lord. Light it again. We, we've been singing about it this morning. We say, oh, Lord, light the fire. I don't want to be a smoldering wick. I don't want to go out of this life with a, with a kind of snuffed out. I, I, I want to live, and I want to die well. Lord, save me. Save us from being glasses half empty. Help us to live as glasses that are half full and expecting more. Lord, raise the game in our lives, we pray. Holy Spirit, just breathe on us this morning. Just put your hands out. Just put your hands out. Just be, just be welcoming of him. Just be welcoming of him. He's not here to condemn you. He's here to renew you. He's here to give you life. He's here to give you life. Just pray with me. Lord Jesus, thank you that you gave your all to save me. Help me now to give my all to see your kingdom come and your will being done on earth as it is in heaven. Holy Spirit, fill me. Remove all complacency. Remove compromise. Remove cynicism. Enable me to be a man of faith, a woman of faith. To live for your glory every day of my life. Help me to be a, a mature person. For those who are husbands, help me to be a good husband. For those who are wives, help me to be a good wife. For those who are parents, help me to be good parents. Help us to be good parents. Lord, bless our families. Bless the church community. May your name be glorified. In Jesus' name. Amen.